Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. It's great to engage in some learning together today on a, a fascinating topic, but what if I love the Greeks? Hanukkah for philosophers. And we're thrilled to partner today with our great partner, BMHBJ, and, um, and to learn today from Rabbanit Lea Sarna, um, great scholar in Philly. And I'm going to pass it over to my colleague, Rabbi Chaitovsky, to introduce Rabbi, Rabbanit Sarna. Thank you all. Thank you, very, thank you very much, Rabbi Shmuley, and um, everyone, welcome everyone. Um, just a little premise, Greeks get a bad rap on Hanukkah. And a lot of people love the Greeks. There's a lot to admire about the Greeks. So there's clearly a tension. And Rabbanit Lea Sarna is going to help us navigate that tension and try to arrive at um, some uh, parameters in which we can uh, navigate this. She previously served, uh, she is the faculty and director of team programming at Drisha, a well-known learning institution in New York. She previously served as Director of Religious Engagement at Anshe Shalom, B'nai Israel in, uh, in Chicago, a leading urban Orthodox congregation. She has ordination from Yeshivat Maharat, has a BA from Yale in philosophy and psychology, and also trained at the SKA Beit Midrash for Women at Migdal Oz, Drisha, and the Center for Modern Torah Leadership. Uh, I believe that's in Boston. She was a Wexner Graduate Fellow and a winner of the Covenant Foundation's Pomegranate Prize. Her published works have appeared in The Atlantic, Washington Post, Lair House, uh, The Jewish Review of Books. She has lectured uh, widely in Orthodox synagogues, Jewish communal settings around the world, and loves spreading her warm, energetic love for Torah and mitzvot with Jews of every background and in every stage of life. Rabbanit Sarna, please. Thank you. All right. So uh, happy Hanukkah, everyone. Thanks so much for coming out. Um, I just want to apologize in advance. My um, it's it's the season of daycare diseases, and my um, eighteen month old brought home something horrible last week. So we're we're in it. Um, but that's the beauty of Zoom. I can't possibly get you sick. So, uh, but you know, if I go and turn off my sound for a second to hack or whatever, now you know why. Um, and um, Anyways, it's wonderful to be here with you over um, over Hanukkah. And as was mentioned in my bio, um, I spent a great deal of my undergraduate career studying philosophy. And particularly, I really fell in love with the ancients. Um, so Greek philosophy and Roman philosophy. And then you get to Hanukkah and you're like, huh, I think I'm supposed to hate the Greeks. <laughs> um, how do I make sense of that? Um, and do our texts have anything to say about it? And amazingly, they do. So today we'll look at some texts that sort of lay out the problem quickly um, from our Hanukkah liturgy, from the Book of Maccabees. Um, and then we'll we'll look at some suggested, um, you know, possible resolutions to it, ways to think about how to sort of fit these things together. Um, and... Um, for me, it's it's important because Greek literature and Greek philosophy. I, I discovered during my years in Chicago that I'm not the only uh, the only uh, clergy person I know who really like 
loves to go back and back again to Greek literature. When I was an undergraduate, it was like my third semester reading Plato's Republic in a different class. Someone said to me, don't you get tired of Plato's Republic? And I sacrilegiously said back to them, do you get tired of the Torah? <laughs> and um, um, I'm not sure I quite would say the same thing now, but that's definitely how I felt about this, this set of, this set of literature of just like, wow, this is so rich and so deep. And it's a really the type of thing that I read and reread with great pleasure. And that means that al Khalika, I have to I have to be able to square that. So here's from the Sidor. This is from the Al-Hanisim insertion that goes into every Shmona Esrei that we say for all of Hanukkah. So we tell this story. In the days of Matityahu, Matthias, son of Yochanan, the high priest, the Hasmonean, and his sons, when the evil Greek kingdom rose up against your people, Israel, what did they do? They tried to make them forget your Torah, turn them away from your statutes, right? Like that sounds really bad. What did the Greeks do? They were um, religiously oppressing us. Um, and a different a different narrative that that goes along with that, but in more detail, comes from the first book of Maccabees, chapter one. Um, in those days, certain renegades came out from Israel and misled many, saying, "Let us go and make covenant with the Gentiles around us, for since we separated from them, many disasters have come upon us." So this proposal pleased this group of what the what the book of Maccabees is calling renegades. And some of the people eagerly went to the king who authorized them to observe the ordinances of the Gentiles. So they built a gymnasium in Jerusalem according to Gentile custom. They removed the marks of circumcision, abandoned the Holy Covenant. They joined with the Gentiles and sold themselves to do evil. Okay, so the, the real voice in the tradition of like the Greeks are evil. Um, and then actually, you know, the, the king seemed to have really loved this idea. Um, and he writes the whole kingdom saying that all should be one people, all should give up their particular customs. And all the Gentiles just said, yes, that sounds great. And even many from Israel also adopted um, this Greek religion. They sacrificed the idols, they profaned Shabbat. Um, and the king sent letters by messengers to Jerusalem, all towns of Judah. He directed them to follow customs that were not the customs of the Jews, to forbid burnt offerings and sacrifices and drink offerings in the sanctuary, to profane Shabbat and festivals, to defile the sanctuaries and the priests, to build altars and sacred precincts and shrines for idols, sacrifice swine and other unclean animals to leave their sons uncircumcised. They were to make themselves abominable by everything unclean and profane so that they should forget the law and change all the ordinances. He added, and whoever does not obey the command of the king shall die. Okay, so we have this really serious like Greek oppression, not we're going after you because you're ethnically Jewish, but we're going after all of your religious practices. We're raising up the profane and we are trying to eliminate the holy. Um, and that is um, that is the attempt by the Greeks. Beyond that, we have we have some halakhic writing about even just the study of, of Greek in general. Um, so the, the Mishnah in Sota says um, in the, the War of Vespasian, the sieges decreed uh, uh, they 
decreed upon the crowns of bridegrooms, i.e. prohibiting the wearing of crowns, and then also upon the, the drums, they prohibited the use of drums. And in the War of Titus, they also decreed upon the crowns of brides. And the Shiloyala made at Bino Yavani. They decreed that a person should not teach his son Greek. So why is that? Doesn't that seem pretty maladaptive in a world where people are speaking Greek? Wouldn't you think that you would need to know it? Um, that seems pretty complicated. Um, but here's what it's about. So the, the Talmud expands on that teaching. And the Meshnah Shaloyam made at Benoyevanit, Tanur Banan. Um, there's a, um, a teaching by the sages, a Baraita sages taught. So when there was a civil war amongst the kings of the Hasmonean monarchy. So what they're going to talk about are Hercules and Aristobulus, who were the sons of Shlomtion Hamalka. Um, and she and her she died and she tried to leave everything to Hercules, who she had in her lifetime already appointed to be the high priest. Um, but that didn't go well. And the two brothers ended up just fighting each other all the time. So Hercules ended up outside the city walls. Aristobulus was inside the city walls of Jerusalem. So every day, the problem was the ones inside the city, right? These are all, so we should back up for a second and just say that Hasmonean kings are also all Kohanim, they're all priests. So they're very invested in the temple continuing to run, even as they are fighting with each other. So the ones inside the city want to be, are the ones who are keeping the temple running, but they don't have any of the stuff that they need. So they would lower money in a box from inside the city, and those on the outside would send up animals to be brought <laughs> as sacrifices. It's a sort of funny image where it's like, we're fighting with each other, but we're still going to be working together to keep the Jewish kind of cultic center uh, running. Perkinos is on the outside, Aristobulus is on the inside. They, The people on the inside would send money out each day, and then the people on the outside would send them up um, the animals that they needed for the daily sacrifices. There was a certain elder there in Jerusalem who was familiar. So we're no longer talking about the language of Yavani, right? That was the, the language of the Mishnah was Greek. Now we're talking about Yavani. We're talking about a certain type of Greek wisdom. That's going to become important. We're going to see that later, that distinction. Um, so now it's specifically Greek wisdom. Amar Lahem, and that this this old old person who knew Greek wisdom said to them, He said to the people on the outside, to the Horganos people, you're never going to win for as long as the, the temple is still running. That's protecting them. That's supporting their side. So then what did this person suggest? Lamachar, Shilshalulahem dinarim Um. So tomorrow, he said, um, so then the next day, the, the the money comes down in the box. And what do they send back? They send a pig, which obviously you cannot bring as a sacrifice in the temple. Um, and what happens with this pig? Once it gets halfway up the wall, it, it, it dug its hooves into the wall, and there was like 
a massive earthquake. The land of Israel shuddered 400 parasangs. Um, and and at that time, everyone, the sieges saw this, they said, cursed is the person who raises pigs. And more than that, it's not even just the pig's fault. It's that guy who told us, because he understood this like Greek wisdom thing, that we should be doing this in the first place. He's out too. No one's allowed to learn this thing. It caused this massive like natural disaster for all of us okay so now we have not only within the Hanukkah story we have the evil Greek kingdom um and then this this threat here like if you don't abandon your religion and obey the commands of the king we're going to kill all of you but even once you have like Greek wisdom kind of infiltrating, even later in the Hasmonean time, right after Hanukkah, when you have Hasmonean kings, um, even then this you have this sense that like Greek wisdom is still causing problems. It's powerful, clearly. But what kind of what, what happens when you tap into that power? It causes natural disasters. It causes earthquakes. It's terrible. Um, so we have this this one version of the story where the Greeks have been, the Greeks are evil, they rise up and you defeat them and they leave behind this kind of pervasive but desirable and powerful knowledge. And it's our job to know that we shouldn't be accessing that, right? And like, if you asked the, the authors of this story, well, Leah read Plato and she really liked it. They would say, oh, of course you really liked it. It's so interesting and so powerful and it causes earthquakes. So don't learn it anyways. You know, like that seems to be what this story would have us, would have us think. Okay, so how do we square it? How do we make sense of it? So even within that Gemara itself, like really picking up almost from where exactly we left off, the Gemara itself is going to start to ask questions on this idea that you're not allowed to learn Greek. So the first thing they're going to say is, well, is that really so? So Rebbe, Rebbe Danasi says, Ba'aretz Yisrael lashon sorsi lama he says, why should people, in Ba'aretz Yisrael, why should people only speak Syriac, Sursi, which is the type of Aramaic that they were speaking in Eretz Yisrael. They shouldn't speak Syriac. They should either speak Hebrew or Greek. Okay, so now it seems like you have a Rudana, see the author of the Mishnah saying, people should learn Greek. Um, and then Rav Yosef says, and Rav Yosef sitting in Babel, Bebavel lashon arami lama. Why should you speak Aramaic? Ella o lashon agodesh o lashon parsi. Rather, either you should speak Hebrew or you should speak Persian. And they say, how do they resolve it? They say, well, Greek language is different from this specific Greek wisdom. Lashon yevani lachud bechachma yevani lachud. So Chachma Yevani is separate from Greek language. Greek language is great. And that's good because there's also like a, a, a big kind of stream in the Jewish tradition that thinks that Greek language is particularly beautiful. You can write the book of Esther in Greek, for example. Um, you can also write it in English. But anyways, um, 
right? There's there's all sorts of all sorts of like halachic ramifications, even to like how much the rabbis sort of love the Greek language and admire it and think it's beautiful. So okay, so Greek language now is fine, but we still have a problem with Chuchma'ivani. We still have a problem with Greek wisdom. And now they're gonna say, okay, but Chuchma'ivani Niasira is Greek wisdom really prohibited because we have this tradition um, in the name of Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel, where it says, Eni she, my eye affected my soul, due to all the daughters of my city. What does that mean? In my father, Rabban Gamliel's home, there were a thousand children. 500 of them learned Torah. And 500 of them learned Greek wisdom. Hold on, in the home of the, the, the prince, uh, Ravan Gamliel, and the Nasi Ravan Gamliel, they were studying Chuchmai Bani. So it can't be prohibited if they're doing that. Okay, but it didn't I mean the, the only remnants of that home, he said, There's only two people left who, who were eyewitnesses who participated in this Ravan Gamliel education. But I'm telling you, this is what it was. So then they say, No, Shani shall be Ravan Gamliel de Kovi So, no, the house of Ravan Gamliel was different because they were very close to the monarch. Um, and they, they and they give they give evidence for it. So um, they talk about a certain type of haircut, a kumi haircut, which is prohibited to normal people because um, of of the Torah's prohibition on doing things that are in the ways of the Amorites, Darke Amori. But this one guy of Tos Ben Ruven, he was allowed to do it. Why was he allowed to do it? Because Shehu Karuvamafu, he was. Um, he was allowed because he was close to the kingdom. He needed to be in like the latest fashion of haircuts. If he was going to, let's say, represent the Jewish people to the king, he needed to kind of look good in court, <laughs> maybe. Um, and so he he was allowed to have this type of otherwise prohibited haircut. Um, and so similarly, So similarly in that home, of Rabban Gamaliel, they were permitted to study Greek wisdom because they are close to the monarchy. So that's resolution number one, right? Option number one is why should we be allowed to study Greek wisdom? Well, I think in a democracy, it's not difficult to say we are all close to the monarchy. The classics are a part of our Western tradition that were certainly, you know, known and studied and beloved by the founders of the United States. And to that end, it makes sense to read Plato's Republic because that is part of the language of our Western democracy. And therefore, we are COVID Lamachut. It's permitted for us because that's what it means to be Jews living in an American democracy. And that same permission that was given to the students of Rabban Gamliel is actually, in fact, given to all of us as well. So I think that's that's model number one that I want to say is that a way to think about it is I have a position as a voting citizen in this country that requires of me a certain educational, um, a certain education and a certain language and a certain engagement with um, with culture and philosophy. And um, the Greeks are just part of that. And they've been part of that, you know, for the last, uh, you know, since the year or whatever, 200 when earlier than that, probably 100 when Ramadan Gamaliel walked the world. And um 
and uh, we can we can walk in that path too. It's as if we're students in the home of Ravana. Yeah. Um, there's so that's that's Greek wisdom. The other thing that we talk about and that our tradition knows a lot about um, in terms of Greek literature is the literature part is Homer. So Homer appears quite early in our tradition. Um, so we, he appears in the Mishnah. Um, so the first reference to it is in the Mish- Mishnah and Yadayim 4.6. It's an amazing Mishnah for all kinds of reasons. But um, the, we're not going to like, I don't think we have time to really look at all of it in depth, even though it's very, very fun. And I definitely recommend learning Mishnah and Yadayim in your own time. Uh, but basically here we have a debate between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, where the Sadducees and and the Mishnah identifies as a Pharisee document. So the, the person who's supposed to come off well in this conversation are the Pharisees, just to be clear. So the Sadducees say, uh, we complain against you Pharisees because you say that the Holy Scriptures defile the hands and the book uh, books of Homer do not defile the hands. So if we're looking for kind of a range of literature, it seems like we have Holy Scriptures, Kitve Kodesh on one side, and Homer on the total other end of the spectrum in terms of um, holiness. Uh, maybe like the book holiness spectrum goes from the Torah to Homer as like the least possible holy thing. But the Sadducees are saying, you're the mapping of impurity onto that holiness of book spectrum seems opposite. Why would you say that holy books defile the hands and not holy books like Homer don't defile the hands. You should say touching Homer makes your hands impure, not that touching the Torah makes your hands impure. And then they go through um, this whole um, this whole amazing example that we're not going to look at in, in depth. Um, but then they say um, the, the principle they come up to is According to the affection for them, so too is their uncleanness. When we want people to treat something with respect and care, that is the um that is when we assign it levels of impurity, actually. Because when something is impure, you have to be really careful about it. You have to be prepared. Oh, I touched this thing. What do I have to do before? What do I have to do after? Um, and the right to the argument with books is like, if I could just be like eating a snack while I'm looking at a book, then I'll destroy the book. I'll get grease all over it. It'll get eaten by animals. So actually, I need to make the book that I want to preserve. I need to make it um, give off impurity so that the book will be safe from my snacking while reading habits or whatever. Um, and so the more beloved something is, the more we protect it by assigning to it impurity. That's the argument of this Mishnah. And they say, Sifre Homerus, they're less beloved. The, the books of Homer, we don't, we don't, they're not precious. We don't love them in the same way. So they do not defile the hands. We have another um, another reference to the books of Homer. This time it's not explicitly in the Mishnah. The Yerushalmi is going to spell it out. So, Because part of the question here is like, okay, so Homer is for sure not Tanakh, and it's not Chaviv. Maybe it's not beloved in the same way. It's not precious in the same way as Tanakh. But it doesn't actually tell you anything about whether I'm allowed to read it or not or touch it or not. All I know is I can touch it while I'm snacking, which is fine, you know? Um it, so, so the mission and the mission and then the Yerushalmi and Sanhedrin shed further light on the status of these books. 
So Mishnah says, this is a list of people who have no share in the world to come, even if they do lots of other mitzvot, still no share. Here's how you can lose your share in the world to come. You can say, you can say there's no resurrection of the dead derived from the Torah. You can say the Torah didn't come from the heavens. Um, the Apikorus and uh, and the Apikorus. So who is that? Maybe it's like someone who treats Torah scholars with contempt or something like that. Rabbi Akiva adds on to that list. Af This includes someone who reads from external literature. So what does that mean, right? Like that could mean the only books you're allowed to own, the only books you're allowed to read are Torah books. And remember, like, we're talking about a time where, like, this number of books that you can see over my shoulder would have been inconceivable, <laughs> right? Like, you have one book on your shelf, like, that book should be the Torah. What would... And, and, and so in that world, I can actually understand, like, in a world where you get to have one book in your home out of any book on earth, and you're a Jew, and you pick Homer to be that book, Whoa, that's so problematic, right? So I I can understand actually construing that choice to be, yeah, that Jew who chooses some other book of literature over Torah, like that's a huge kind of heresy. I can understand that, but that's actually not where the Yerushalmi takes it. So the Yerushalmi says um, in Sanhedrin 28a, Rabbi Akiva Omer, it brings Rabbi Akiva's opinion, people who read external books of literature. What are those external books of literature? For example, Ben Sira. And then he says, so, so apocryphal books, um, you know, wisdom literature that didn't make its way into the into Tanakh, like books that are extra canonical. But so, but books of Homer and all books written from now on, it's like, it's neutral. It's like you're reading financial documents. It's not holy. It's not religious, but it's like, um, you know, like reading, reading a bill, you know, like reading your credit card bill, you should probably do that. Like maybe that's even a good thing to do. Um, and maybe there are limitations on when you're allowed to do that. So for example, um, there's a pretty good argument to be made that you're not allowed to read egarets. You're not allowed to read financial documents on Shabbat. Maybe you could say, you know, it, it comes with all of the, the halakhic weight of reading an egaret, which is to say you're allowed to do it, but there's limitations on doing it in the right time and in the right place. Um, and we'll see more about that going forward. But just within these these little texts in Sanhedrin, or in Yadayim and Sanhedrin, right, Yadayim leaves open the option that, yeah, it's not a Torah text, Homer, and it doesn't get treated within our Tumatara purity, impurity book structure as a holy text, for sure not. It's not beloved in the same way, but doesn't mean you're a terrible person if you read Homer or that you are participating in the evils of Greek culture. It just means like, this is a nice book. It's not the same as the Torah. Um, and I think we, we see that same type of thing even more so um, in, in the Yerushalmi and Sanhedrin, where it's like, yep, yeah, this book, it's just neutral. It's not a religious book. It's not holy, but it's neutral. Okay, so now we're going to see something even um, that takes it from, right? So option number one, which we saw in Sota was well, maybe there is really a prohibition on reading these books, but but there's an exemption carved out for people who participate in government, and maybe that's really all of us now. 
That was option number one. Option number two was maybe these books actually are just kind of neutral. They're not Torah. Don't treat them like Torah, but they're they're neutral and it's okay. It's like reading a bill. The Shvi'ah Emunah is written by uh, Rabbi Meir Ibn al-Debi, who's the grandson of the Rosh. His, his book was published in uh, 1360 in Toledo. Um, and he has a, a different take. His take is probably you should read these books and probably there's real wisdom in them. And maybe it's even Jewish wisdom. So just I'll, I'll just read you a, a tiny, a tiny bit of what he he says he found it. So we don't know. Did he actually find this written somewhere or did he invent this story? Hard to say, but it's kind of incredible. So here goes. Um, so I found I found it written that Aristotle, the Greek, that all the the wise uh, scientists follow after him and they draw out of his books. And he was the teacher of Alexander the Great. That is true. Jamalach al Alam, who was the king of the whole world. Kasher Kavash Alexandros Yushalayim. So when Alexander the Great captured Jerusalem, he shlit la Aristo Rabo al Utsar Shlomo, Allah Pashalom. He gave Aristotle um, free access, free reign over the library of King Solomon. So Aristotle studied all of King Solomon's books and he took them and he copied them in his own name. And like all plagiarists, he added in some mistakes somewhere. Um, and then he hid the books of King Solomon, in order to fool the world, and into thinking that Aristotle himself wrote these books out of his own um, mind. And then he says, then then Rabbi uh, Meir Ibn al-Dabi, the author, says, okay, so when I saw this story, I was so grateful and I was so joyous and I said yes now it is known that the origins and the, the foundations of all wisdom all wisdom that is found amongst Islam and Christianity was previously belonging to the Jewish people and they are true things and they are ours um, and um, and therefore, right, with that idea, that actually opens up the doors of study to say, oh, when I'm studying Aristotle, I'm not studying Greek wisdom. Mapito, I'm studying Jewish wisdom that the Greeks plagiarized from us. Um, that the source of all, I'm seeing someone being like, that's ridiculous. Um, which is totally fine. That's totally a fine way to think about it. Um, it do not have to buy anything that the Shvile Amuna is selling to you. But I do think that um, there's something very sort of, very sort of beautiful about this idea of all knowledge is interconnected and um, like Jewish, um, ancient Jewish wisdom can be reflected and found in uh, other streams of wisdom because there's like a truth, a unity of truth, maybe. Um, it, 
I think, you know, sometimes in, in a postmodern world, we're anxious about saying things like that. Um, but I, maybe I'm not as like postmodern as people would want me to be. But I, I still kind of think that there is um, there is sort of a, a unity of truth and, and it can be found in multiple places. And that's what opens up doors to finding it in other places, because if if the divine is the source of all of that truth, then then it's all it's all just collecting sparks. Um, but in any event, so that's that what this idea is quite different from the previous ones where we had seen, you know, maybe in certain circumstances it's fine or you can treat it like as if you're reading a bill, but it's not actually ours and it's not actually holy. Here it would be to say, no, it's actually holy and it's actually ours. So now we're jumping. Um, oh, this, I guess, is around the same time as um, it, we're jumping to a different part of Spain. So we were in that we were in Toledo and now we're in Valencia and Algiers with the Rivash. And he's getting these exact sort of same questions. The Rivash is a halachist. So he's going to write about it in different ways. Um, but he's looking at, at that first Gemara that we saw and saying, okay, there's a prohibition on on Greek wisdom. Um, does that mean that we're supposed to um, also distance ourselves from, and he's going to address directly Aristotle's physics and metaphysics. Um, and so then he's going to say, Oh, so then he's going to, then he goes on to say, sorry, before we get there, let me just say what he's going to say, is that he um, he's going to really narrow what is so it's not all greek philosophy it's the specific type of like magical greek wisdom thing that that one elder um who in the hasmonean times kind of gave them bad advice based off of but it's not aristotle necessarily says the rebash so that here's where he says that so pirush so he says Greek wisdom, it refers to these types of gestures, enigmatic statements, riddles. It was only prohibited because of the story. And it's not, it's it's like the narrow thing that's being discussed in the story, and not all wisdom that came from anyone who called themselves a Greek. So he's really kind of narrowing the the definition involved in that story. Um, but then he says, you know, it, it, it's important to recognize um, that there are problematic or like theologically problematic ideas that come out of Greek wisdom. So um, they, they, they uh, try and uproot principles of our holy Torah. And he brings out too that he, um, that he particularly finds problematic. Um, so those are uh, creation ex nihilo. And God's personal divine providence intervention within people. So Aristotle doesn't believe in either of those things. Um, and the Rivash says, you know, like if you're reading the physics and the metaphysics, that's that's a problem because they, he Aristotle really goes out of his way to disprove things that Jews in the Torah hold to be in a, in a different way. 
Um, and so is there, is there any is there a greater kind of book of heresy than those that bring examples and proofs that undermine principles of the Torah? Right. Um, and then he says, you know, like there are amazing scholars in Jewish history who have delved deeply into Greek literature, and he talks about at length about the Rambam and about um, Gersonides. And he says, you know, those people, like they, first of all, before he started learning Greek literature, claims the Rivash, who Lamad Kodemachin Kola Torah Kula. Before he started learning Greek literature, he had learned the entire Torah in its bishly mood, in, in its fullness and perfections. He learned laws and narratives, Tusefta, Sifra, Sifrei, the, all of the Talmuds. And you can see that because he wrote the, the Mishnah Torah and he, right, the Rambam has this like extraordinary legal code. You know that the Rambam really knew the Torah cold and the Rivash is saying he did all that before he turned his attention to Greek wisdom. Um, and then, right, in order to, in order to respond to the heretic, he wrote the Moran, the Guide to the Perplexed, which clearly turns on his knowledge and understanding of Aristotle. Um, I'll just mention, you know, as like a Aristotle and Rambam lover, it's interesting to me that the Rivash doesn't talk about the Rambam's introduction to Pirkei Avot, the Shemona Prakim, which is fully just a rehashing of Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. Um, and, um, but in like a very beautiful, very like Torah kind of way. Um, and and Maimonides fesses up to it, meaning it, in, in his introduction to that introduction he talks about taking wisdom that's what his famous line take wisdom from wherever it comes um is in that introduction because he knows that that's exactly the project that he's doing in his introduction to to Pirkei to Ethics of the Fathers is integrating so much of Aristotle's wisdom about um balancing different traits in the middle path and um and or the mean or whatever you want to call it and um um and some like Maimonides there writes beautifully about friendship, and that's also all based on Aristotle. You know, all kinds of amazing things are in there. Um, and, and so you would think that that would be, I mean, I think it's just not the question that the Rivash was asked, but you would think that that would be what he would talk about here. I've always been a little disappointed in this text because of that. Um, anyways, he says also, right, um, the Rambam, he learned the whole Torah before he started doing any of this. He says, nevertheless, my mom was drawn a little bit after some of the proofs of Aristotle. He was convinced a little bit by then. And my mom would say, yeah, that's me just like learning truth from wherever it comes. Um, but the Rivash would say, that's really bad. And if you're going to read something and it's going to teach you something that's against the Torah, that's very scary. And even the Rambam was convinced by it. And so it should be even scarier to you because you're not the Rambam. Um, and so he says, Everyone should, should kind of make an argument for himself 
Um, Maimonides and Gersonides, these two kings, they, they couldn't stand on the straight and narrow um, regarding some of the things that they learned from Aristotle. How much more so we cannot compare in our um, in our brilliance to them. So the Rivash doesn't say it's prohibited. He says these texts are, and he says, first thing he says is these texts are not what the Talmud is prohibiting. And then he says, but you know what? Like, keep your eyeballs in your brain. Like, there's something scary about these texts. They're very convincing. There's something quite threatening about that. Pay attention as you're reading it. And I, I you know, I think there's something that's, I, I'm not sure you need to agree with the Rivash's exact um, application of that idea in order to agree that anytime you read, you have to read critically. And just because you read something and you get drawn into its world, right? Like if you, if you read Aristotle and said, yes, everything in here is true, then like you would just go and enslave someone, you know, like uh, there's just so much, there's so much in there that's problematic. Um, and not everything that, not everything that we not everything that that we read should we adopt as truth and learning. It's it's really the challenge of our generation, especially as computers start generating nonsense that sounds very truthy. Um, really learning how to read for truth and and read for accuracy and ask difficult questions um, becomes even more essential than than ever. Um, and so I, I think is that to be the takeaway from the Rivash, who's essentially saying, yes, you can read this stuff, but you gotta be so careful with how you're reading. To me, that that does resonate as an important kind of takeaway and message. Um, and the last little text I'll bring here, and then and then I'll conclude and we'll open up for questions, um, is, is this one, which is also um, really great. So Sha'al, we're back in the we're back in the Talmud. Sha'al ben Dama ben Achotosha Rabbi Shmael at Rabbi Shmael. So Ben Dama, the son of Rabbi Shmael's sister, asked his uncle Rabbi Shmael. So someone like me says, I learned the entire Torah. Am I allowed to study Greek wisdom? And then Rabbi Ishmael responds with a verse. The verse says, This Torah scroll shall not depart from your mouth. You shall contemplate it day and night. So then what Rabbi Ishmael says to him is, say uvduk Go and search for an hour that is neither part of the day nor part of the night, and then you're allowed to learn Greek wisdom. And what I think it is is quite helpful, actually, about this, it sounds ridiculous and dismissive, I'll just own that, right? It sounds like Rabbi Ishmael says, yes, but not within the 24-hour period. Um but but I do think that any any time that we are spending time on something, there's a opportunity cost to that, and I think that's the real message of of Rabbi Shmuel's statement is, well, you're studying this stuff and you love it, and that's great, but at what um, at what cost? Um, and I think that's that's sim similar to what I was saying about the Rivash, where um, you know maybe like the specific application of the thing doesn't resonate as much, but the idea that we should be asking ourselves oh, this seems very convincing. Am I correct to be convinced by it? And here, wow, I love this and it's so wonderful. And still we should always be asking ourselves, is this the right use of my time? Time is one of our most precious resources. And you know, if it, 
instead of reading Greek literature, I could be working with Rav Shmuley to help alleviate suffering somewhere. Like, wow, that's a real consideration, you know, and I should be thinking about that. I should be thinking about that seriously. But I think at the end of the day, what we can say, and I'll stop sharing for now, um, is that there's a, we presented and seen together a lot of different avenues towards making sense out of what does it mean to love Greek wisdom and Greek philosophy and Greek literature? Um, and none of these would say, well, it's the same as Torah. And like, you can put down your Brajid and pick up your Plato and those are identical. But we've seen different ways of making sense of how to fit that love in. Does it make me a better person or a better citizen? Does it add to my wisdom of the world? Does it add to my understanding of the Torah? Which I think is not inconceivable um my my spouse actually that's like what he does he's a bible scholar and he writes about comparisons between plato and tanakh and um and he feels that those comparisons deeply increase our ability to understand tanakh um and so actually it really is to to study torah would be to study these things um but with all of the and with that permission, though, all of the risks associated with spending our time on anything, what else can I be doing in this time? And also all the risks associated with um, new ideas, uh, or in this case, really old ideas, but really any ideas that we have to we have to read everything with careful eyes and and question and evaluation and not just accept things because, oh, it's Aristotle. It must be true. Um, we certainly would not want to. Um, would not want to adopt that perspective. Um, okay, so I think we'll take we'll take questions if people have any. Yes, thank you so much, Ravaneet Sarna. We'd love to open it up to uh, questions or comments. Please feel free um, to raise your hands and then you can unmute um, and I can call on people or you can always use the chat as well. Uh, hi, Judy. Hi, I had two thoughts about this that just kind of were nagging at me while we're reading these things. One is the um, the Hasidic the Hasidic sects where they do not allow their children to study arithmetic or or science or any of the anything practical even even English although they are American citizens that's one the other is Kabbalah where you're not supposed to study it until you're 35 and you're married and you have whatever the other, and you, you have to have learned a lot of Torah. So I think the danger that those two things are worried about is that you'll get carried away by exciting ideas that are other than Torah. Can you comment on this? Yeah, so I think they're sort of, well, okay. Let me start where, where you started by saying that, um, you know, I I don't plan to educate my children in that way, but I also don't love like criticizing other other Jewish communities. We're in a pluralistic space, obviously. Um, but I would say like the way I um the way I think about it is, I, and I know some people here uh, were were kind of laughing at that source that it was like, oh, Aristotle discovered King Solomon's trove of wisdom and called it his own. But to me, there's something very appealing about this idea that that all truth has one has one root and contains divinity and and the ability to inspire us and make us better people and um, have better access to God. And so the way that I was raised in in modern Orthodox schools, where we went from Talmud class to 
biology class to history class to um, chumash class. And that was very purposeful that the day was not divided because the idea was that it all should feel, all education, all learning, all growth should feel like Torah. Um, and so that's that's kind of how I grew up. And I still really, really, really believe that. Um, I also... Um, you know, so to say like, oh, I'm going to study something else and it's going to take away from this. Like, no, studying something else is the study of Torah um, as long as you're you're doing it right. And as long as you're organizing your time well. Yeah, I think that that's kind of, did that answer your did that answer your question? Sort of. <laughs> I think it's the best we can address it, because unless we are going to become insular and never interact with the rest of the world, um, knowledge of the rest of the world is important for us to have. And that includes things like medicine, if you think about Maimonides. I'm sure. Yeah. Right. I mean, that what you just said is also important because for Maimonides, and really up until like quite recently in the, the history of knowledge, like medicine and philo like science and philosophy were not different fields until like Descartes <laughs> like until you have the development of the scientific method which is not for another like hundreds of years after these texts that we were looking at and that's when you start to have but even like Isaac Newton was a philosopher you know like um, Leibniz was a philosopher um, even though he um, he create like whatever like you would also study him in a math class or a physics class um so the the distinction between philosophy math science medicine for aristotle those were all one thing and it took a really long time to kind of have the divisions that we do now and recognizing that is important because it's also important to recognize that the knowledge categorizations that we have now are also kind of fake uh like they're invented and recent um and um and I think that's just like you don't you don't no one ever tells you that when you go to college you know like oh it's in the philosophy department but it could have been in the biology department or the poli sci department or the gender department because those things they're all kind of the boundaries are messy hi Stuart and then Bob next Tada, Rabba. um Rabbanit how did the rabbis um feel about um the purity of uh, Hebrew scripture translated into Greek. For example, uh, did the Septuagint or Greek Esther defile the hands? I believe not. I believe it did not. I'm not 100% certain on that because I, I didn't like freshen up on that before this class, but I, I, I believe that it does not. Uh, Bob and then Carl and Jenny. So my question is related to stewards. I mean, so... Uh... I mean, the, there was the Greek translation of the Tanakh, that, and like there was, there were Jewish communities, like one in Alexandria, where uh, I mean, there was there was a certain integration of uh, Jewish tradition and Greek culture, and and like, does all of that sort of play into this at all? I mean, does that history? Uh, like, how did the rabbis relate to that history? It's a great question. And I think it's a better question than answers exist to. Or if there are good answers, I don't know them. Um, um, I wouldn't be surprised to hear that there's some scholars who are working on that right now. Um, because we're finding, we're, we're learning more and more about those communities all the time. There's also Elephantine, uh, which is like, there's just all, like, there were a few different communities in Egypt that were quite Hellenized, but that 
like they had sometimes they had their own kind of cultic centers like they had their own temple like there's all the second temple period is crazy um and uh and the jews that they asked for at that time were doing all sorts of wild stuff that we're just kind of starting to learn to learn about and piece together so um i don't i don't think i have like an awesome answer to that but i bet that the more we learn about those communities um the more we'll be able to read texts like the ones i presented to you from the talmud and start to understand them differently because we could probably assume that they, the rabbis like knew about those communities and had feelings about them. But until we kind of have more details, it's hard to, it's hard to recreate what, what exactly that, that was or what it looked like. But I definitely think that's a really interesting piece of the puzzle. Um, but also the rabbis are, are engaged in a, in a fight for their own legitimacy. So they're not, uh, like we think, oh, the rabbis totally won, but like, we only know that in retrospect. Um, so at the time, you know, there were all these other communities doing all this other crazy stuff. Um, and um, and they, they weren't the world's greatest pluralists. Um, so I guess that that's what that's what I'll say. But there certainly are people who are really, really working on that question right now. Hi, is it Jenny? Yes, thank you. Um, I wanted to ask um, Ravaneet Sarna if either you have written about this or if there are some resources you can recommend. It's all very interesting. I'd like to know of some more resources if you have any to recommend. Um, I have not written about this. I'm trying to think off the top of my head who has. Um. I did definitely. I put this together a few years ago, and there were some articles that I read while I was while I was putting this together. But they're they're not like at top of mind right now. But if I can go back and recreate it, I'll try and send it your way. Thank you. Thank you again, uh, Ravaneet Sarna. It's always a pleasure to learn with you. And um, just want to let everyone know about our next class, which will be next Thursday on December 21st, Radical Jewish Views of God, Maimonides versus uh, Spinoza at 1 p.m. Mountain Time with Rabbi Micah Streifer. And uh, Rabbi Chaitovsky? I just, I, my video got turned off and I, I just wanted to say one, thank you very much. It was very uh, wonderful. Um, you know, I went to a very right-wing yeshiva in Philadelphia where they certainly believed in Torah only. And I remember having a conversation with the religious advisor, the Mashkiach Ruchani, the spiritual director. And he said, I notice that you do a lot of reading. You know that everything you need to find is in Torah. And I said, I absolutely believe everything is in Torah. I just don't know how to yank it out of Torah on my own. So I need literature and I need math and I need history and philology and all these other disciplines to help yank it out. And and yeah, I believe it's Torah only, but I believe in order to support that, you can look elsewhere, including Greek philosophy and and uh, who knows where else. So. Absolutely. It's a beautiful articulation. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you all for joining us today. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember, that you can join our email list at valleybatemadrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybatemadrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together.
to build a better world. Thanks for listening.